0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, January 15th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson.
2: Hello, everyone.
1: Perry DeAngelis. Right. And Jay Novella. Hey, hey. Good evening, all. Hey, Steve. Hey, Steve. Hey, Hello. what's up, Steve? You guys all getting psyched for the TAM5 meeting?
3: Totally yes. psyched. Oh, Absolutely, I can't wait.
1: So we are recording this uh, before we all leave for the meeting. This will be posted up while we're at the meeting, and we will, we're going to try to do as much recording as we can while we're there as well. And hopefully we'll, st- we'll start having some of that next week.
3: A good time will be had by all.
1: Except you. Perry, Perry, alas, won't be there, but the rest of us will be. Be there
3: emotionally with both my analytical and reactive minds. More on that later. (laughs) So I have
1: to say I've recently had to reevaluate my whole stance on miracles. Your um, whole stance. On the nonexistence of miracles (laughs) after... The recent victory of the um, New England Patriots against the that San Diego Chargers on Sunday. Not a miracle. <laughs> not a miracle. It, it was absolutely miraculous. It was
3: a uh, thievery, awesome what that was. It's crim- criminal behavior. And, and, yeah, and Tom Brady, uh, I'm afraid
1: Tom Brady is a god. <laughs>
3: criminal, <laughs> criminal behavior. <laughs> Steve, this Cheating. is a uh,
1: science based podcast.
3: Paying off the referees I know, and just, other various. I had, a, I had a
1: momentary lapse after that game. It was absolutely incredible.
2: I, I I couldn't agree more. Also, he's very
1: hot.
4: Uh, you know, this is a little out of schedule, but we we did get an email this week. Someone, um, I guess you can call it a complaint, said that we do a little bit too much uh, backslapping and loose talk in the beginning, and they want us to jump right in. Really? Do you guys yeah, read that one? Yeah, true.
1: sure. Yeah. I, I told them I told them to fast forward if you don't like the banter. He also said we are unfunny,
5: so that kind of hurt. I would uh-huh. like to tell I would like to tell everyone out there, please. We
4: do this for free because we believe in skepticism and we, we actually do enjoy doing the show. But we enjoy the show and we do it because we like to joke around and we like to talk to each other.
3: Well, speak for yourself. I hate talking to you people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only here for the paycheck. We should take every criticism we get in email and alter the show constantly based on the feedback that we get.
1: Seriously, our you know, we do we do actually tabulate and listen to all of our feedback. And regarding the witty humorous banter, it's about 98% pro and 2% negative. So that's yeah, what we listen true. to. So yeah, there's the, there's the occasional negative comment, but most people say this show's entertaining and funny, so we we you know we do we do adjust what we do based upon the feedback. But that's where yeah. that's where it's pointing. Thanks. But, you know, can I just point out that that I, I want to point
2: out that that person wrote in and said that he couldn't get past the ten minutes of banter, and he was angry because we never got around to um, having Randy on. And it, you know, if he didn't get past the ten minutes, then how does he know?
1: So yeah, his
2: his his own email was was. Randy spoke.
1: <laughs> but let's get right to the news.
3: Yes, let's. Uh,
1: there's been a lot of stem cell news in yeah. recently. Um, so you know, we talk, We've talked about the whole stem cell debate before. I think this is an area where the the government is imposing uh, political views and social views onto science. And it's oh, you know, it's okay to make moral judgments and value judgments, etc. You know, Obviously, I don't think that scientists should have completely free, free reign to do whatever they want without any morality check. But I think what's been interesting is that a, a lot of the anti-stem cell research people, those who, who opposed to it for a moral view – have all made really ridiculous, unsubstantiated scientific claims about stem cell research in order to defend their position, which is just intellectually dishonest. Just say, "I listen, I understand the potential for stem cell research, but I have a moral objection to harvesting human cells, and leave it at that. But they have to also take the position that, well, stem cell does, doesn't work for anything, which is a non sequitur because no one's claiming that it does. We're claiming that it's an a, a, um, a fruitful area, or at least has a lot of potential for future research. So saying that it doesn't currently work for anything is just not relevant to the entire debate. Or they try to downplay its utility or its potential. Or they try to say that other sources of stem cells are equivalent to embryonic stem cells, all of which are scientifically uh, inaccurate statements. This, and this debate really came to a head um, in 2001 when President Bush essentially... August yeah. just before nine eleven. <laughs> right, right. It was like the big news of his administration before nine eleven. Basically, basically, put a federal ban on on federal funding for stem cell research. He restricted it to existing cell lines, which presidential turned out, lines. Yes, the pre, well, I guess like, the presidential lines. But it turns out that they were, you know, very few of them turned out to be viable. And obviously, in the last five six years, the technology has progressed. So now we could make better cell lines than the ones that were around in two thousand and one. Well, um, the debate has never really gone away, but there's been a few things sort of in rapid succession in the news. Um, one is that the uh, the fairly recently elected Democratic Congress, at least in the House, has passed a bill uh, essentially reversing the president's ban and providing for federal funding for stem cell research. Uh, it still has to pass the Senate. And... and and uh, President Bush has already vowed to veto it if it reaches his desk.
5: But well, which he did last last time last year when this which, happened. Which right? he did last
1: time, right? Even when the Republicans still held the the Congress, right. they passed a similar bill. Of note, the the House passed the bill with too few votes to override a uh, mm. presidential veto. So unless wow. if, even now, yeah. So if Bush vetoed it. Um, the the they, the the Congress would not be able to override his veto with the votes they currently have. They'd have to recruit more votes. So you're
3: just not going to get this until over. Nah, I mean, yeah, it's not
5: you got to love a president that <laughs> vows to fight science. Right. <laughs> yeah. is well, so Steve. Just, I found I, just I dug up a quote from last last year when when uh, when it passed in in the House, I believe it was in in July. And Bob Park, uh, who we, who we had on the show uh, last year, had a great quote. I just wanted want to say this one. Uh, he said that Mr. Bush vetoed the Stem Cell Research Enhancement Act. This is back in July. The first veto of his presidency was exercised to protect surplus embryonic stem cells in fertility clinics from research, thus preserving their dignity so they can be put out with the garbage. That's right.
1: That's, the, that's to me, the most irrational thing line. about the whole thing is that we're talking about using uh, embryonic stem cells that, that are left over essentially from fertility clinics and would otherwise be thrown away but it 's they they 're basically committing the slippery slope logical fallacy, and they 're saying well we don 't want to legalize the use of those embryonic stem cells because then that would right. lead to people you know harvesting embryonic stem cells just for the sake of doing research or for medical purposes and wh- which you could say which is again that 's the slippery slope argument that if we you know if you go one step down this road, you have to go it 's going to lead inevitably to the to the ridiculous extreme instead of just saying, well, no, we could just open it up to." These embryonic stem cells, but but still ban you know specifically harvesting um, cells just for research. So that's sort of another logical fallacy thrown in there. It's
3: an idiotic low point for the president. I mean, it's just terrible. And they can't get enough votes to override a veto. He's yeah. not alone. Yeah. I mean, it's terrible.
1: Yeah, I mean, I terrible. think the political winds are shifting away from him, but just, I guess, not enough yet to – it. well, not until 08. I agree with you. Now, there was an article uh, recently published in The Guardian, which is just about the chilling effect that the federal ban has on stem cell research. And this is something that I've heard directly from some of my colleagues who are involved in research. This article focused on Harvard, um, that other you know university I hear about in New England. Uh, that uh, basically, that <laughs> basically uh, for those of you who may not remember, I work at Yale. Once, if, if, so if a researcher wants to do research, privately funded research in the U.S. on stem cells, uh, the ban works as such as that, they, that no aspect of their research can be touched by federal funding. That means their lab, their equipment, the, the people that they pay, they're paper clips. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and you, you you might laugh at that, but in in you know in recent years, um, the federal government has become very detailed and picky about the accounting for where um, money for research goes. They really – before it used to be that money was a bit fungible. You know, you you say this is how much the research is going to cost. You get a bunch of money, and then you sort of – you know, you might be getting money from several different sources for for several different ongoing projects, and you just pay for stuff. You pay for your equipment, you know. um, You pay for people, and you don't – you didn't really have to, like – really, in a detailed fashion, allocate how much money from each study is going to to how much of each piece of equipment in each person. But now you basically have to do that. And You're saying that that's a, di-
3: a direct result of the stem cell decision? Uh, no, I'm not
1: saying that. I, and I don't know how much it, it is. I, honestly, I don't know. I don't know if it's just the government cracking down on accounting for their money. The, but you combine these two things, You know, the fact that you, you have to account for every penny, and no penny can touch anything that's being used for the uh, stem cell research it really makes it difficult to impossible to, to carry out privately funded stem cell research in a university lab where you're also doing other things so it it really uh, has an effect that goes far beyond just saying there's no federal money but you know you could you could be funded to the hill with private money for stem cell research
3: well, what do you think about it in general steve do you think it's a good idea that they're cracking down on on the on the money Yes and no, you know, On it's, the accountability.
1: It's going to, you know, certainly uh, keep people more honest and re- honest and reduce fraud, but at the same time, it just creates a lot more bureaucratic work for people who are probably basically being honest anyway, and it, it's just a lot more red tape to do federally funded research. So it's a mixed bag, in my opinion. Now, the, the other stem cell thing in the news recently, uh, which is good news, is that uh, scientists have published that they have discovered. Stem cells in amniotic fluid. So this is essentially a new source of stem cells. But it's worth noting that not all stem cells are stem cells. What the, the the federal ban is on embryonic stem cells, stem cells that are derived specifically from embryos. You could there are also adult derived stem cells, which are also very interesting and also may yield incredible things. But they are universally considered to not have the same potential that embryonic stem cells have. The key about stem cells also just a quick for the quick background is that they have yet to differentiate into specific tissue types. So they still retain all of the, their possibilities. They haven't gone down any lines. So they haven't turned into liver cells or heart cells or brain cells yet. They're just sort of these what we call totipotent undifferentiated cells that could become Wait, anything. A totipotent. 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 That's a word. Did you just make that up? No, that's the technical term. I think
2: term you made that it. up. That's the Tony technical Putin. term for it. <laughs> well, okay, toady well, put. Steve, um, yeah.
5: I, I thought this was. I thought this was very interesting. And when I really read the article carefully, I mean, really, I mean, maybe you're misinterpreting it, uh, but it really seemed interesting to me. Um, a couple of the things I gleaned from the article was that uh, these new these new amniotic fluid stem cells have uh, have a lot of advantages over other non-embryonic stem cells, like umbilical cord yeah. stem cells fat tissue and, and bone marrow derived in that they are truly pluripotent mm-hmm. which i guess is like one step under totipotent yes and right. that they can turn they're capable of turning into almost any tissue Too many things as opposed to
1: anything right
5: okay so there's that advantage and then the other advantage is that they divide very well doubling every 36 yeah. hours so these so this in my mind puts them like just one step Just under, just below embryonic stem cells. Yeah, that's that's
1: right. The early early news
5: is that they're better
1: better than adult-derived stem cells, but perhaps not quite as good as embryonic stem cells.
5: But what about this, though? This really caught my eye. Apparently, Steve, these these amniotic fluid-derived stem cells have advantages over embryonic stem cells. Now, tell me how accurate this is. It's said that there's, well, first off, there's no, you know— moral obstacle over harm, harming human life. That, of course, that's, that's the a big, biggie.
1: That's the big that, news, That's a yeah. biggie.
5: But this other one was that... Um they do not form tumors like embryonic stem cells can.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's one of the thi- that's still early to say, but that's one of the okay. things that they may be more stable and they may have a less of a potential. This, which, of course, is the big downside to stem cell therapies in right. general. Is that well, yes, they can they can grow and they can turn into anything, but they could also turn into tumors and cancer. And right. perhaps the amniotic stem cells may be a, a little may, they may be a little bit less pluripotent than st- embryonic stem cells, but maybe they're a little bit more stable and a little bit less liable to become tumors or, or cancer,
4: so Steve, the ones that can turn into cancerous cells would you consider them poopy potent
3: <laughs> <laughs> Crappy, but your diabetes is cured, but now you have cancer right Well, that's Sorry. but
5: even that's a major technical hurdle for stem cell therapy yeah, I would right, so. But even for a best-case scenario for these uh, amniotic fluid stem cells, even the best case, the bottom line, I think, is that we still need to keep studying all the different cell types. Sure. Because, um, at least according to a lead author of the study, uh, Anthony Atala, he's the director of the Wake Forest Institute of Regenerative Medicine, he says that um, we need to keep studying all these different cell types to see what works best for each application at the end. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, this one looks the best. Let's put all our money here. I think we should be studying no, all No, absolutely,
1: and probably in the future we'll find that embryonic cells are best for this, amniotic cells are right. best for that, adult-derived stem cells are best for something else, and we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. And It still sounds like it's good, good news. news. It's though. very promising. I mean, again, yeah. we, it yeah. remains to be seen where it will all lead. Not every promising new avenue of research yields gold, but it, it's very promising.
3: According to the news, it does. <laughs> Steve, is this considered
4: to be a lot less, uh, you know, a lot less of a conspiracy, you know, or you know, are people up in arms about this new type of stem cell they found yet? Has anybody I haven't heard any complaints it? yet.
5: No, I think what people will be saying is that, see, we don't need embryonic right. stem cells. Let's focus on these. And so, in, in that I'm regard, al- I
1: am bad. already hearing that. People are saying, you see, it was good that we delayed the science of embryonic stem cells because now science has delivered us a, no- a morally non-controversial source of stem cells. So there are some people already beating that drum. Uh, well, let's move on. The Skeptic's Guide is produced in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. And, of course, James Randi contributes his James Randi Speaks five-minute commentary uh, every episode for the last six months or so, which which we are very pleased to have. Um, So I'm just going to report on a bit of James Randi news. The uh, James Randi Educational Foundation has altered their rules for executing the Million Dollar Psychic Challenge. Now, we've spoken about this on the show before. We've spoken to James Randi on the show about it before. Basically, uh, if you have a, a supernatural or paranormal or occult claim um, and you feel that you can prove it under test conditions then you know the the jref will will test your claim and if you can pass a simple test a test that's mutually agreed, that's upon, mutually agreed upon which is important then uh, you can win a million dollars Now, we actually tracked down Jeff Wegg, who directs the Million Dollar Second Challenge for the JREF. He is already in Las Vegas getting ready for TAM5, and we called him at his hotel in Las Vegas. So let's go to Jeff now. So joining us now is Jeff Wegg from the James Randi Education Foundation. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Jeff, we asked you to, to, uh, to join us on the show to talk to us about the recent changes in Randy's Million Dollar Psychic Challenge. So can you sum them up for us?
6: Yes, and I'm so glad this is out in public now. We, we've been talking about this for months, and it's been hard to keep it under wraps, and Randy's flipped a couple of times, but uh, now <laughs> it's official, and we can talk about it. The bottom line is this. Um, we spent a lot of time going through challenge applications at the JREF. We get a couple dozen and they're mostly from crazy people. Uh, that's, that's the short of it. Um, we have a lot of people applying who just don't have a firm grasp on reality. And it takes up an awful lot of time, and uh, a lot of the times we can't even tell where they came from because they don't include a return address or an Cyrillic or stuff like that. So it's not doing anyone any good. If we test a crazy person and they fail – Okay, what have we proven? Nothing. We've exposed a crazy person. Yay. It doesn't do any good for us or them. Uh, If they should happen to win, then maybe we would have discovered something, but we really don't think that that's likely. So what we're trying to do is spend our energies actually doing something useful. And the idea came about what if, instead of having a challenge open to everyone, we just went after the big targets, and we did it aggressively. Now, the other thing about these crazy people is they're not really hurting anybody. They're just in their own little worlds, and they probably need some professional help, but we're not the ones to offer that. But there are a lot of people out there who are actually doing real damage. They're the ones you see on television, and they pretty much get a free pass. Sylvia Brown is probably the biggest example. She accepted Randy's challenge in 2001, September of 2001 and then just decided that she wasn't going to follow through, and uh, she should be allowed to get away with that. So we're going to take the energy and resources we were putting into dealing with the daily grind of going through the same old, hard-to-read, incomplete, silly application, and we're going to take that energy and aggressively go after people and hound them and continue to say, Sylvia, why won't you take this million dollars if you don't need the million dollars? There are plenty of charities who could use this million dollars. Please take it from us and use it for a charity. If you have the ability to take that million dollars from us and use it for a charity and you don't do it, why not?
4: That's awesome.
6: How can you yeah. call yourself an ethical person for not taking that million and using it to help burn children or whoever you might pick?
1: Yeah. Plus, you could silence the critics and the skeptics once and for all, just prove that your, your powers are legitimate.
4: So, Jeff, are you going to go to media outlets and do this? Are you going to have it in newspapers and on TV?
2: yeah this sounds really really good just because uh, I know a lot of people are hoping to see more of Randy out and about is do you think that that's a reality is Randy? are we going to be seeing him more on, on- I believe
6: but uh, Randy spent all, all week on the phone and uh yeah. doing interviews uh, and i when you called, I was busy answering press inquiries to come to Tam this uh, this announcement has really brought people out of the woodwork the, the media is starting to pay attention so now it's our job to capitalize on this
1: yeah, it's good timing with Tim, i guess too that's it right. is yeah. It,
6: yeah. it worked out in the wired article that came out uh this week really helped us and we had no idea when it was coming out but he, uh, he's apparently a friend of ours because he did it perfectly
2: oh yeah fantastic article very pro j ref great article
5: it's- very accurate mm-hmm. jeff this is bob how are you hi bob question for you uh i think this is a great idea just putting all your time and energy on on the big boys but uh, one thing I see, though, is that I think what's going to happen is you're really not going to be doing this test anymore. and You're really not going to be carrying out the test. Well, I think it would, seems to me that it would be only very rarely that you'd get a big name who's actually willing to do it. Uh, you, do you anticipate that?
6: Yes. I, and, and that brings up another question is that we've given people an ounce. Um Some farmer in New Mexico can douse for water. And he writes to Randy and says, see, I'm the real thing, and you won't test me because you're afraid of me. You know right. housing's real. Well, our answer to that is, is we have two criteria by which we will test you. One is you need a media presence. The other is you need some qualification. Well, there's an easy way to gain both of those things, and that's to apply for one of the many other challenges that other skeptics across the country have offered. If you can pass their test, you're more than welcome to try for ours. We'll, we'll say that flat out. If, if The Tampa Bay skeptics, I believe, have a $1,000 maybe $10,000 prize, very similar to ours they don 't have the restrictions we have they 'll test they 'll be more free to test people if you can pass theirs that in our eyes will give you the credentials you need to apply for our challenge
1: yeah, I was going to suggest that, which is actually not too different than what he 's doing He what had been doing, which is farming out a lot of the the screening tests to local groups like we 've done it for him several times, so it sounds good I think it 's a good idea to to continue to do that. You may even want to Formalize that by you know making you know, a, a, at least a reference network for other or local skeptical organizations that are willing to do the screening tests or or the or testing uh, for those who don't have the the, exactly. the public profile to warrant James Randi's you know direct like administration. Steve said uh, Jeff
3: we have tested a, a few people preliminar, preliminarily for the JREF and uh, they were diagnosable so I I think I think sanity. Sanity is a reasonable hurdle to have to cross. And, and
6: again, you you read over, you know, um, when Kramer was doing the challenge, he very dutifully posted everything, all the correspondence with all the challenge applicants. So anyone who cares to look at the forums at forums.randy.org and click on challenge applications, you can see what we deal with. And when you peruse those, you see that these people, they're not normal people with special abilities. They're just not normal people, I and mean, they're, they're people who are really in a state of distress, and
1: often very, very self-deluded.
3: Yeah, they're abnormal people with normal abilities. That's what they are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what they are. We're
6: actually helping promote their delusions because if we take them seriously, right, it, it's a, it, it feeds it, and it, it becomes a problem. And then when they finally do get the testing, which happens very rarely, because most of them can't fill out the form or Hmm. agree to a simple double-blind protocol, you know, that goes way over their heads. When they fail, they're convinced that we're evil or there were solar flares or sunspots. You know, you've heard all the stories.
2: I like to blame most of my failures on evil or solar flares. (laughs) Jeff,
4: do you have any, uh, any story, one of the better ones you can share with us without naming names?
6: I do have one. The most interesting one that I dealt with was the gentleman who claimed that, and I have to word this very carefully, an egg could detect the imminent intention of death on another in his cohort what that means is if you took an egg out of a package of a dozen eggs and intended to boil it another egg in that dozen would sense that and react and he had invented a device that would detect that reaction
2: and didn't he have videos supposedly showing this? Oh I seem God. to recall seeing, seeing a bit of that. And I, I, I watched the videos a Whoa. lot. And I, uh, I, 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 yeah. He filmed a video
6: online, and he has an egg hooked up with electrodes. I mean, imagine 50 sci-fi, and you know what his gizmo looks like. He put the, light, the egg in the water, and after a certain amount of time, the device started screaming and you were given the impression that it was the egg screaming in in horror about its cohort eggs. How these eggs knew they were in the same dozen is beyond me, but, you know, we don't get into speculation. We just want people to do what they can say. Right. Uh, But it turns out that this device he was using, actually uh, something he had invented to detect when plants needed water. So that Uh, raised all kinds of questions hmm. to me, and then I... And I'll I'll tell you another story since this is uh, being taped. You can edit what you want. But uh, my favorite story from the Kramer era was a guy called – Kramer had cute names for everybody, and and I stopped doing that when I took over because I I didn't want to make fun of these people. I I wanted this to be much more serious. And he called this guy Walk the Line. And this guy's ability was to make things appear along a rail track. So he would walk along the railroad tracks, and his presence would make things appear. So suddenly he'd look down – yeah. And he had a hamburger wrapper on the ground. And he'd walk a few more steps, and there's a tire.
2: And then, if he kept walking, eventually he would make a train appear, right? <laughs> <laughs>
6: you know, but, you know, we're laughing, the funny, and, and I find it funny too, but in reality, this is a severely deluded yeah. guy. And yeah. that was one of those cases that made me think what are we doing here? Um, yeah. Nobody nobody is listening to this guy thinking, oh, psychics are real. Right. So it, it is a waste of our time, and it, it does him a disservice to actually proceed with things like this. But at the same time, the challenge had to be open in order to prevent people from saying, well, I'm the real thing and you won't test me. New strategy seems to account for everything. Now it's brand new, and we're going to have to see what
1: happens. Right. But well, even Randy said early on in the challenge that he had lots of – you know, frauds and charlatans were taking the test, but he weeded them out over time, and as the years went by, the percentage of just nutcases went up and up. So eventually it was just you know, severely deluded people and no real interesting contestants. Well, Jeff, thank you once again for joining us to explain all of that, and just uh, for the audience, so you're you are at – Las Vegas, right now, at, and getting ready for TAM 5.
6: I am at the Riviera Hotel, and I'm about to go out to dinner with some of the speakers for TAM. So, TAM, okay. as far as I'm concerned, has started. Excellent. Where are you guys?
1: We're, we'll be there in a few days. We'll be there in
4: a
2: few days. I'll be there tomorrow.
1: Jeff, I'll be drinking with you at 1 o'clock on Thursday. All right, <laughs> Good Jeff. Bye bye. Okay, Dave. thanks very much. Right. See you then. See you, Jeff. Well, let's move on to your emails and questions. The, this first one comes from Jarrett Lamont in Santa Barbara, California, and he writes. Stephen, Bob, Rebecca, J. Perry, and Evan. Whew. I'll start off as most do by thanking you for a wonderful podcast. Having just recently discovered the show, I promptly signed up for a one-year membership to support your work and began working my way through previous episodes. On to my question. What advice do you have for skeptics and critical thinkers for evaluating conspiracy theories with regard to the government? And by this, I don't mean the complete idiocy that takes the form of moon-landing hoax conspiracies or flying saucers and the like. I mean the more prevalent theories such as information suppression, cover-ups, clandestine deals, corruption, all the way up to the more extreme things like 9-11 involvement, election fixing, etc. Personally speaking, I find no shortage of clear and well-publicized issues that anger me about the current administration. However, the items reported in the news are often not enough. Some people and other things are talked about as though they were fact. It can often be very difficult to tell where the facts end and the theories and woo-woo begin. When I challenge people on their claims, I'm called either naive or some sort of crypto-Republican or Bush apologist. And, of course, I'm reminded that our government, both parties, has a history of cover-up scandals and conspiracies, so, so perhaps this casts things in a different light. Uh, so this is actually a really good question, um, and we, we we deal quite a bit with the conspiracy theorists. It, it is a major category of as he says woo woo or pseudoscience, and it is one you know I think we all have a little bit of a conspiracy theorist inside of us, so how do we uh, how do we know you know when the reasonable notions of, of cover ups and conspiracies end, and the real extreme grand conspiracies begin? I think there are a few. Reality checks that you can give yourself. The first one is if your belief in a government conspiracy or cover-up happens to precisely coincide with your with your political views, you need to ratchet up the skepticism a little bit. Just be more suspicious when things seem to support views you already hold, especially if they're you know very emotionally or or, or very opinion uh, very emotionally held political views. Second, if you find yourself thinking that everybody who disagrees with you is naive that 's also a red flag um, that the the accusation of being quote unquote naive is cheap it 's an easy way to dismiss disconfirming evidence or opinions uh, or other opinions it's like saying you don't have faith it's like saying you 're closed minded you know to conspiracy theorists, the dismissiveness is you're naive you're hoodwinked. Um, you believe everything you hear. I mean, whatever. It's the same thing. It's just it's, it's just an ad hominem dismissive type of attitude. So be careful about that. You have to, you know, evaluate the claims based upon plausibility. You know, how big and how deep and how huge does this conspiracy have to go in order for it to make sense? Uh, you also have to consider, you know, realistically, where's the mainstream media in all of this? There are news outlets that pretty much cater to every point of view and every opinion. You know, you could argue about, does it lean this way or does not lean that way? But the bottom line is, if if the Bush administration, for example, were perpetrating some kind of hoax or cover-up or conspiracy, believe me, the New York Times would be doing everything they could to break that story. CNN. CNN. And
3: they do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Really? Seriously. The news cycle never stops. Now. And
1: if a Democrat, you know, we're, we're doing the same thing, Fox News would be there to, to, to pull the rug out from of under course. them. I mean, you know... Every, every political point of view has its media outlets these days. So if you have to then broaden the conspiracy to involve all the mainstream media, that's another red flag. But you know, but it is true that you know cover-ups occur. If you ever have two people in a room agreeing to commit fraud or a crime, that's a conspiracy. That happens. Sure, it does. Uh, it's it's really the ultimately it comes down to the size and scope that that makes it you know either plausible or implausible. But for but the individual has to be careful about the thinking, the, the the logic that goes with it. If you find yourself dismissing disconfirming evidence as part of the conspiracy, or explaining away the lack of evidence, well, of course there's no evidence for that because it's a cover-up. You know, those are the kind of things where. So you basically, if you start insulating your belief from any possibility of of disconfirming it, that's when you're getting trapped inside a conspiracy theory. So the next question comes from. Ian Horner from San Diego, California. And first, I'd just like to say that Ian is probably still licking his wounds over San Diego's epic <laughs> upset yesterday <laughs> oh, at the hands of the New England no, Patriots. Back to that. Totally got <laughs> me. Anyway, poor Ian writes First off, I want to say I love your podcast. You are by far the best one out of many that I subscribe to and hope you can answer a few questions of mine. Well, after after that, how could we not? He further writes, I have three separate questions for the panel. Uh, I can't guarantee you we're going to get to all three of them. I think we're going to... Well, we might, we might get to all three of them. First, I just finished listening to episode number 48 with Steve Mursky, where you guys just touched on herbal remedies such as ginkgo biloba and how full of BS much of it is. Could you guys perhaps go down the list of some of the more popular ones and debunk some of their claims? If not, anything else... Do it for my mother, who is a fanatic for them. Some truth would be nice well let 's deal with this one before I read the rest of his email um, quickly, We do make a lot of swipes at herbal remedies and herbs in general, um, and we have talked about it on the podcast before, but again, just to give just the, the my quick overview. The the thing about herbs is there's nothing um, supernatural or implausible about the fact that any particular herb can have a medicinal effect. The, but the truth of the matter is that herbs are drugs. There's nothing magical about them. The fact that they're quote-unquote natural is irrelevant. It's meaningless. They're drugs. They're drugs that have not been purified, identified, uh, etc., quantified. There is, there's probably in most you know plants there's hundreds of chemicals in there to with varying degrees of uh, of potency. So, but let's I can't we, you know, we don't have time to go over every single one. Maybe over you know multiple podcasts we'll tell, we'll come back to, to different ones. But since you brought up ginkgo biloba, um, I, I can give you the skinny on this one. So the only thing about herbs is that they're just untested. They're not studied to the degree that say prescription drugs are. And and at least in this country, in the United States, their laws are such that there's really no quality control in place. So – but the the story of ginkgo biloba is very telling. Um, Most of the the companies that are are selling or promoting ginkgo biloba will mention the fact that it's been used as a traditional remedy in the the Far East, uh, in China, for example – um, so it's been used for hundreds or thousands of years. So this is supposed to lend some sort of credibility to it. And a lot of defenders of herbal remedies will say, well, you know, these, these things have been used for a long time. So, you know, native peoples have sorted out, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, maybe there is some legitimacy to that for for herbs that have uh, or plants that have some obvious physiological effect. Yet most, so, you know, most uh, societies and civilizations found the hallucinogens in their environment. They did that actually quite effectively, because there's an obvious effect there. Um, But subtle effects or epidemiological effects, you just can't sort that out without modern scientific, you know, controlled clinical trials and and epidemiological statistics. You can't just sort it out through trial and error. But the the interesting thing is that ginkgo biloba was used in these uh, ancient Eastern cultures for things other than what it is being sold for now. Now ginkgo is sold as a memory enhancer. It might, you know, help or delay uh, alzheimer's disease uh and in healthy people it may promote you know mental focus and promote um memory, especially like an aging population but that that it was not used for that in by the ancient cultures, so even that argument not only is it dubious it's actually factually incorrect uh the The whole notion that ginkgo might be useful for memory was invented in nineteen sixty four by a German pharmacologist who wanted to sell it so and you really had no historical basis for it. Now, the, the basis for the, for the claim, the way it's justified now is, well, there's two things. One is that ginkgo bloba is a mild blood thinner and that it's also an antioxidant. But here's the thing. There are other blood thinners that, that work in a very similar way to ginkgo bloba already on the market. One of them is aspirin. Aspirin is does the same thing that ginkgo does. It's actually a stronger antiplatelet blood thinner than ginkgo is, and it's probably one of the most studied drugs in in the world now if ginkgo improves blood flow to the brain and therefore brain function by thinning the blood why wouldn't aspirin do that and and believe me it's been studied and these effects are just not present uh it may be useful in the same way that aspirin is in treating you know, uh, vascular disorders, but then why not just take aspirin in known amounts? It's been exquisitely studied. We have literally hundreds of thousands of people entered in clinical trials with aspirin, looking at its safety and effectiveness as an antiplatelet therapy. Why go to something like Ginkgo, which is completely, you don't know what dose you're going to get, you don't know what's the right dose, and this is a very f- finely tuned thing that we're dealing with. So it's it may have that effect, but it's, it's, it's a really, really poor cousin to aspirin, if that's true. And as an antioxidant, well, antioxidants are fine as far as they go, but you know what? They've been hugely studied too. They've, you know, we now have about 20 years of clinical research with antioxidants in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and all the neurodegenerative disorders. And the bottom line is, although theoretically it's a fine idea, they just haven't been shown to work in any of these diseases. Um, There may be some subtle, longer-term effect.
3: People used to go on about antioxidants.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, even I did. I mean, you know, you asked me in 1995. I'm like, yeah, antioxidants. That's it's a great idea. You know, oxidative stress damages cells. Antioxidants prevents the damage. It's a really fruitful area of research. And then we did the research, and it just didn't pan out. It just doesn't have that much of a clinical effect. So the other thing that ginkgo biloba is a good example of is the way is the course that research in these things takes over over the historical time. So there has been lots of clinical trials with ginkgo biloba, but they're all the vast majority of them are small, poorly designed, poorly controlled, with mixed results. The proponents will focus on all the positive studies, without really assessing uh, the quality of those studies, Um, and they do meta-analyses to try to like add some statistical power to those studies, Uh, and uh, you know up until very recently the promoters of and the believers in ginkgo biloba were using that data to suggest that it, it probably has a beneficial effect for memory although they always say the standard phrase but further clinical trials are needed well guess what those further clinical trials are now being done there was one published about a year or two ago in JAMA I have I have a link to that uh, that's the journal of the American Medical Association and this was a a, a reasonably sized placebo controlled trial of uh, ginkgo biloba in uh, in healthy adults and it was shown to have absolutely no beneficial effect on memory or cognition or any or any measure that I was used i am shocked so but it's one study you know but the thing is it's it's the best design study we have to date so the, again, the promoters are saying, well, it wasn't for long enough, it wasn't for a high enough dose, although it was for the dose and duration that people are selling it for. So that's hi- hypocritical. And they're saying, well, one study doesn't trump you know the hundreds of positive studies. Well, but the best study does trump a lot of lower quality studies. There is a. The NIH is currently undergoing a, even a much larger study with thousands of subjects for um, ginkgo biloba in early Alzheimer's disease. We'll probably have these results sometime in 2008. We'll see what that shows. If that shows an effect, and you know, I'll be the first one to say, "Hey, this this the, now there's evidence. Now there's reason to something to base a claim on." If it shows no effect, which I suspect, just given the the data that we have so far. You know The unfortunate thing is, at least in this country, it's not going to affect the industry because the industry does, you know, doesn't need research under current regulation to sell their products. They'll just make further excuses for it. Uh, but what, what it will show to those who are scientifically inclined is that um, hundreds of low-quality studies can be wrong. They have, they've been wrong historically. This <laughs> may be one more case that shows that they could be wrong. It shows you how weak the research is until you get to really carefully designed uh, clinical trials. So, and that's a pretty good representative of most of the popular herbal remedies that are out there, but they each have their own you know, story that maybe we'll get to. At, so, the, the, in
3: the main future. draw for these herbal remedies is that they're, it sounds to me, is that they're all natural.
1: That's the main marketing you know, draw, yeah. That they're I mean, na- that's the main draw. They're natural. They're like
3: cr- Randy says, so are pebbles and bird shit, and I'm not going to eat that. That's right.
1: And so is arsenic.
3: Yeah, it's so little to go on, it's ridiculous. Right.
4: The thing that I really I when I talk to people about this, I, I, I constantly say to them, you're not getting a consistent dose. It hasn't been it hasn't been studied for interactions with other drugs that you're you're taking. You know, none of the R and D has been done behind them. They're literally taking these plants, you know, varying degree of of health and quality and all those different things. They're chopping them up, they're putting them into pills and they're having you take them, but there's no consistency, there's no there's none there's
1: none of the safety precautions put in place. That's right, but they're being bamboozled by the marketing. They say it's not a drug; it's natural, non sequitur You know that's just wrong. Or they're they're saying these things have been used by thousands of years for by you know by uh, ancient cultures or traditional people. Again, not not usually not for the indications that they're being promoted for now and. Again, that does—that's no proof of safety. You know, um, there are lots of negative health effects that you can't notice. The end user wouldn't notice. It's they're statistical. They're only the kind of thing you can you can notice by look by carefully tracking lots of people who are taking it. It's it's a very 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 small reassurance that it's that it's not horribly unsafe. You know, but it, it's compelling. It, the marketing works. You know, it's unfortunate.
3: On some people.
1: Let's get to a second question. So Ian asks, my second question is one for myself. I subscribe to a podcast called Mysterious Universe, not for the science, but for the muse of entertainment it brings. One subject that has come up a few times is of shadow people or old hag syndrome, where a person is lying awake and unable to move and witnessing a shadow figure climbing over them. I would love to hear the skeptical truth on this matter and what is exactly happening during these reported events. I've had a uh, a drunken
4: girl crawl on top of me that was not good looking, and I would consider her like very similar to Thank that.
1: Thank for that, Jay. Okay. <laughs> Jay, that's the closely related drunken hag syndrome. Oh. Not be <laughs> I keep
5: confusing these things. I'm sorry. Not to be
1: confused with the old hag
5: syndrome. <laughs> Bob, go ahead. Well, we, we covered this, uh, I forget, last year at some point we covered it. I'm not in a- and detail. And that's a
3: society, Bob, we've been doing it for over a decade starting with the Warrens.
5: Right. You want to, yeah, one of the first articles I wrote for our newsletter I involved, right, that's right. involved this. That's right. I, I just wrote a quick paragraph to, to sum it up. Um, old hag syndrome is one of the many culturally dependent interpretations of a waking dream. These hallucinations, called hypnogosia, occur when we are partially asleep and awake at the same time and so can involve visual, auditory, and tactile hallucinations. Often people are paralyzed during these experiences. Sleep paralysis is a byproduct of REM sleep and is necessary so we don't act out our dreams and injure ourselves. Other cultures have other interpretations, such as a sexual demon or incubus, which was common during the Middle Ages. Many people today interpret it is ghostly visitations or even UFO abductions. So that's the bottom line on that. I I
1: had one of these just the other day. Oh. I get them. I get them. About 15% of the quote-unquote normal, neurologically normal population, get these occasionally. I get them whenever I'm extremely sleep-deprived or if I wake up early in the morning and then go back to sleep. And basically, you're just trapped in between being awake and being asleep. You definitely are paralyzed. There's always a sense of a malevolent presence in the room with you. Uh, And I frequently like try to awaken myself and get up and i just keep dreaming that i'm getting up and i'm i'm really not moving and it's it's a very unpleasant surreal experience and i could definitely see how if you didn't know what it was you would think that something scary right. and paranormal was going on
2: and you know just a few months ago they uh researchers actually made this happen uh stimulating um people's brains in order to cause them to sense a shadow person that mimicked their movements. Um so yeah, it was it's really kind of a freaky test that they did though. The the patients uh yeah, the patients just thought that there was a person constantly shadowing them and this was just in the middle of the day.
1: <laughs> which is Yeah, but that what that was looking at was the, the brain, you know, has a, a model of your own self. Yeah. And embedded in the universe, in the world around you. So you know where you begin, and where you end, and where the universe is. And you have a sense that you are in the, the, the universe. And if you disrupt that, then the, it, your image of yourself, you don't, you don't recognize it as yourself. So you think there's this other entity constantly right behind you or shattering you. But it's actually your brain's like echo or image of your, of your body. Yeah. So it's basically disruption of that, of that part of the brain. Weird. Very, very interesting research. Quickly, the last question is, uh, my last question is, whose kids do I keep hearing in the background of some of the episodes? Just one of those annoying little questions I keep wondering for no apparent those reason. Those are mine. Well, those are Rebecca's cat. <laughs> those are Rebecca's cat. <laughs> right? uh, th- those are my two daughters, Julia and Autumn. I do mostly record the show after I put them to bed, but occasionally have to record at some other time. And, you know, they're noisy little girls. What can I say? So they may uh, (laughs) (laughs) occasionally be (laughs) be, uh, talking or screaming or whatever in the background. The the next question comes from Don Jennings from Torrance, California. Got a lot of disappointed Californians. (laughs) The the question comes from the last episode, and he's referring to the episode from 113.06, about when you become a skeptic sounded. Uh, That would be 113.07. Oh, you're right. He he wrote 06, but it is 07. Uh, about when you become a skeptic sounded uncomfortably to me like discussions I have heard about when I be- came to Christ or when I came to organic food. I don't mean to slander you all. I listen to the podcast religiously, oops, and I think you are great, but I don't think this, that skepticism is something you come to or are converted to. My French refer to me as a skeptic, but I don't think of myself as such. I just believe in using what intelligence I have coupled with the information available to view the world critically and with clear sight. Well, I got new news for you, John. Don, you are a skeptic. But let me go on. <laughs> let us be honest, if we were living 300 years ago, we all might well believe in ghosts and we would all believe that the earth is the center of the universe. I agree we stand on the shoulders of giants, and that's why we have the benefit of the perspective that we do. Uh, But let me go on. We know today that there are no ghosts to an extent the same way we know that the atom consists of a positive nucleus surrounded by a swarm of negative electrons. Somebody who did the research told us, Looking at skepticism as some kind of movement desirable in itself leads to what you briefly discussed at the beginning of the global warming segment, i.e. people who ignore reasonable evidence get some credibility just because they are skeptics. Yeah, we do. We've had a number of questions that in one form or another basically make this same point point. Uh, and that essentially sometimes we slip into the language of talking about skepticism and skeptics and the skeptical movement. Uh, but I do think that there is some legitimacy to that in that there are people who you know, value an honest pursuit of science and scientific truth for its own sake. That um value and understanding of the mechanisms of self deception you know how we deceive ourselves, think that you know believe in scientific integrity and high quality of scholarship who believe that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and those that suite of beliefs and values tend to go together, and we you know loosely. And collectively refer to that as skepticism or scientific skepticism, and people who basically behave that way as skeptics. And I think that that's legitimate. But and we, we recognize that it's it's not a monolithic belief system or movement, and that there's a lot of a lot of individuality within there. And also, I think a very critical difference between you know a religious belief uh, or others who use identity for its own sake is that we're not actually advocating a belief. Or, or a set of beliefs. We're, we're advocating a methodology. We're advocating just critical thinking, whatever that leads to, which means that you wouldn't ignore evidence because that's not the method we're advocating. We're advocating listening to the evidence and being careful about your logic and, and your arguments and accepting whatever the logic and evidence supports. So I think that that is where the, your, the analogy that Don is trying to draw falls down one more email before we uh before we go on this one comes from william watkinson in detroit michigan and he writes thank you all for the hard work you put into each podcast i am interested in your views on scientology obviously i know that none of you believe in and he wrote zemu but he really meant zenu with an n uh, but, I am more interested in how that this Platformer. cult is able to attract followers i 'm sure that you get plenty of show topics from listeners, but I think a show about scientology 's beliefs and how the cult operates would be an informative show and He goes on to talk about other things but let's let 's just go on to his question so we have talked about Scientology on the show before, uh, but there 's always more to say about it i mean it's it 's a very um interesting interesting topic We did have you know we 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 have with us this evening. Perry D'Angelis, and Perry, was actually our man in the street investigating a a local uh, chapter of Scientology right here in New Haven, Connecticut. Perry, why don't you tell us about your experience?
3: Yeah, I I went in there uh, seven or eight years ago. I just wanted to see, you know, what it was like, what was going on, and of course, it was uh, it was pathetic. Once I finally found the the little entrance, I went upstairs. And, uh, you know, it was like a little sales office. So I don't know, maybe like a real estate office or something had a bunch of photographs on the wall. I guess L. Ron Hubbard had a, um, a hobby of taking photographs and had a big wall. It said writing with light and there were all these crummy photos of, you know, fields and barns. And, you know, uh, I mean the guy who was, he was really, uh, you know, really sensationalized everywhere you went. And there were books and pamphlets all over the place. Anyway, so I went in there and I said, you know, hey, I'd like to find out what this is about. So the first thing they do, as soon as you go in, is they, they uh, hit you with their 200-question questionnaire, mm-hmm. right? They want, it's a personality profile and they want to
4: – Did you flub it, though? Did you deliberately lie about it?
3: I did not deliberately No, you were lie honest. It,
1: no. You were honest because you wanted to see what they were going to say about it.
3: It was pretty simplistic stuff, you know, uh, stuff like you know, do you talk slow, and, you know. It it was a long, it was a, a slog to get through. Anyway, I got through it. I handed it in. They said, okay, well, we need to uh, sort of analyze this, and in the meantime, here, sit down and watch this video. And basically, it was about a 45-minute video, and it it went into the basics of of their philosophy about engrams, the basic philosophy of Scientology. Uh, comes from Dianetics but the basic the basic thing is that uh, you have two minds Uh, one is your analytical mind which takes in information analyzes it stores it thinks about it the other mind is called your reactive mind and your reactive mind is the problem that's the one that stores they say uh, emotional and physical pain and it stores it in these sort of mental pictures that they call engrams, okay? So everyone's walking around with these engrams because you've got these pains stored up in your mind, in your reactive mind, and the goal of Dianetics, by extension, the Church of Scientology, is to clear those out, okay? It's to make you, quote-unquote, a clear. And, you know, basically it says that these engrams are created anytime you have something negative happen to you and you are in some form of diminished capacity so after i saw the video they uh they took me in the back and they sat me down with a young lady uh, really a kid and she had the results of my test in front of her and she started reading it and she said well you know you have some high points and you have some low points briefly talked about my high points
1: but and the key was the what the, the the shtick is that your high points scientology can help you make them higher and your low points, Scientology can help you fix those. So no matter what the result of that test, Scientology can help you with all of it.
3: And my low points in this case was that I was cold-blooded and heartless. Um, and and, <laughs> and she, she told me that. And she read, she said, I have no understanding of my fellow human beings. And I can't relate to them on any meaningful level. And, and yeah, indeed, Scientology could help me with with points. Uh, so she with basically said
1: that you're a, that you're a sociopath.
3: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly correct. Seriously, it said I was a sociopath. So she was reading the thing anyway, and I, I was you know, trying to look over and see what she had in her hand. And I asked her if I could see it. And she said uh, she thought about it for a second. She's a little unsure of herself. She said, OK. And she handed it to me. And not only did I get the results of my test back, I also got she handed me mm-hmm. her script that she 's supposed to she 's supposed to read to new applicants, so uh, you know i've, I've I immediately I kept it you know and I, I got out of there pretty quickly after that because I wanted to get and basically the you know the script goes on to to tell you it, It's it 's really a marketing ploy it yeah. tells you how to if they object and if they say, "Well, can I hear more about my high points you say well don 't really worry about those, these are your low points, these are how we can fix you." It says if, if they start to agree with you to to play up on that, don't let them object to you. Uh, never be apologetic or half-hearted about what you're doing. Um, always say things like Scientology can help you with that. We that can be changed with Scientology. That can be improved with Scientology. Did it say anything about the superpowers?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> I superpowers. I
3: even asked, you know Rebecca, I even asked this young lady about that specifically. I said you know what do you what do you think about all that stuff? What do you think about Xenu and the volcano and the and the laser beams and she said uh, you know i don't know anything about that yeah, I, mm-hmm. yeah. As, as if she'd never heard about Zenu. Yeah. And, and of yeah. course
1: that's one of the primary features that makes it a, a cult or it's one of the big cult aspects of Scientology is that they don't disclose their real belief system up front. They get you in the door with this pseudo-psychobabble nonsense, but then once you get deeper and deeper into it, then you learn, well, it's actually, no, that's actually not true. It's that we're being inhabited by the distressed ghosts of murdered aliens from millions of years ago, and the whole Zeno thing. They don't even tell thing, you that
2: until you're really, really deep no. into
1: it.
3: So there's a very yeah, good chance deep, that deep, she deep. hadn't ever heard of Xeno.
1: Yeah, probably not.
3: At the end, though, it tells you in this little thing she gave me, tells her how to feed you to the sales staff, yeah. um, how to go over there say, <coughs> I don't have anything to do with that, but this lady can tell you about our courses and services that we offer and go over there and talk to her, and then you're supposed to be fed to that lady. I didn't bother yeah. with yeah. That. I mean, it's a, it's a, just, a pretty
1: I, a mechanical, manipulative yeah. sales pitch, basically. And that was and, scripted and out. And pathetic. Yeah.
3: I mean, really. Yeah. Very, very simple. Very simplistic. Right. And now,
0: Randy Speaks. Hello, this is James Randy. I was reminded the other day of an encounter that I had back in 1980 with a gentleman named James Heydrich Heidrich dressed in sort of uh, black pajamas. He thought he was a kung fu expert of some kind, and perhaps he did have some experience in that line, but he had learned a very special trick. It got him on the program that I've always called That's Inedible. I think the name was actually That's Incredible. But John Davidson was taken in completely by him, as he was by many other people. Heydrich could move small objects on a tabletop, apparently merely by concentrating on them. He could also turn the pages, or a page at a time, in a telephone directly, just simply by lurching toward the thing and making strange gestures. Well, it wasn't much of a puzzle, if you had any knowledge of the conjuring techniques. Heydrich was simply blowing, blowing along the table, and that would raise the page and turn it over. I must admit, however, that he was very good at it. He had the ability to hide the fact that he was blowing by fixing his lips in what we call a vent position. That's a ventriloquist's position. The ventriloquist uses this particular mouth structure or shape in order to be able to speak without moving his lips. In 1980, Goodson-Todman Productions came up with a new show format. It was called That's My Line. No, not What's My Line? That's My Line. It was rather short-lived. I think it only lasted for one season. I was on the very first two episodes, Bob Barker was the MC of the show. On the first episode, I appeared as Adam Gerson, that's Adam, J-E-R-S-I-N, which is an anagram for James Randi, if you work on it carefully. They tried not to show extreme close-ups of me, so I might not be recognized, but I posed as a psychic, and I was able to fool the audience into believing that I had some sort of psychic powers. But then Bob Barker revealed the whole thing, and everybody was much happier. I certainly was. My second appearance on that show was to confront James Heydrich with his trick of blowing telephone pages over. That was quite an adventure. Mark Goodson was the director on the show, and he just about went nuts. You must understand that this was a very big studio in the Los Angeles area. Very large audience was accommodated and we had to make very special preparations for Mr. Heydrich. I got to the studio very early that day, before Heydrich arrived, and I demonstrated to Mark Goodson that the air conditioning would have to be turned off, which was rather a disastrous decision to have to make, because it was a large building, there were lots of hot lights going, and the audience would probably be a bit uncomfortable. As it turned out, they were. I simply turned a styrofoam cup on its side and I showed Mark Goodson that the cup would run around in circles merely because of the natural ambiance of the studio with its moving air conditioning currents. So we turned the whole system off. That had to be done a good hour before Heydrich arrived to do his demonstration. Heydrich did his regular demo of turning the page of the telephone book, and then it was my turn. I stepped over to the table and distributed some styrofoam peanuts, the kind of thing that you used to package delicate objects, all around the table. Heydrich was stymied. He couldn't blow, or the styrofoam tablets would run in all directions, of course, and it would be very obvious what he was doing. Because he hummed and hawed for such a long period of time, Mark Goodson had to tell the audience that they could go out to lunch and come back in about an hour. But meanwhile, the whole staff, all of the crew, the cameramen, the editors, the the whole business had to be on duty in case Heydrich suddenly decided that he was possessed of psychic powers again. Well, the upshot of the thing was that Heydrich couldn't do anything. When the audience came back in again, they didn't see a demonstration of any kind. Except that I duplicated the Heydrich trick simply by blowing. And I think I did it rather well. Shortly after that, Heydrich vanished from sight. It turned out he'd been arrested. He was a very sad character and had a long history of such misdemeanors. Look it up on our website. This is James Randy.
5: It's time for Science or Fiction.
1: Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine and one is fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptical rogues to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week's items? Yes. 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 All right, here we go. Item number one, scientists have discovered a possible off switch for HIV. That's the human immunodeficiency virus that causes AIDS. Item number two, researchers have found that being bilingual delays the onset of dementia by as much as four years. And item number three, Scientists have used a new technique to date a modern human skull, meaning a a, a modern Homo sapiens, that was discovered 50 years ago. And the new dating shows that humans migrated out of Africa as early as 150,000 years ago. Rebecca, why don't you go first? Oh,
2: man. (laughs) Um, Okay, so...
1: Off switch for HIV, bilingual, delays dementia, or... A new, newly dated skull pushes back the out of Africa thing by 250,000
2: one hundred and fifty thousand years. Okay. Um, bilingual dementia—that sounds right. I think I think that's true. I'll switch for HIV. I, th- I I seem to recall there being something in the news about that, but I'm not sure, and I could be thinking of something else entirely. So I I think I think that might be true. Uh, I'm going to go with. Um, the, the dating of the human skull. I think that that's fiction.
5: Okay, Bob? Three is fiction.
2: Okay, short and sweet.
5: Jay?
4: Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to go with that one as well.
3: All right, Perry? Huh. Yes, I've uh, already punched this into the computer and uh, <laughs> got the absolute answer. It's it's number three.
1: All right, so you guys all ag- all agree that the, uh, the the dating of the human skull is the fiction, which means that you all think that scientists have discovered a possible off switch for HIV is true, and that one is indeed science. How about that? So they've uh, this is a um, click that sucker a Pretty off. good discovery. I mean, they're they're learning more and more about how uh, HIV works, and and the virus can go into a hibernation state where it basically waits until uh, it can be reactivated and wreak havoc. And they're tr- trying to figure out how to basically alter proteins in the virus that will cause it to go into this inactive or hibernating state, essentially to trick it into, into turning off. The hope is that it will lead to new treatments that would um, essentially stop the virus from, from doing its, know, its, Steve, its dirty it's work. You know, Steve, it's
3: my impression that because HIV is so political – That it it gets a lot of coverage, and therefore it gets a lot of money and a lot of big minds working on it. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of money into uh, into HIV research. Part of it was that it was uh, certainly a very high-profile disease. That is just—it's easier to get money for high-profile diseases. You know, certainly the 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 government wants to look as if they're doing research into high-profile diseases. It means there's a lot of people out there beating the bushes and writing letters and, you know, trying to, to promote our research. So, yeah, uh, and sometimes it can be hard to to get sufficient funding for so-called orphan diseases or rare diseases that don't have, you know, either famous pe- people shilling for them or have, you know, large um, patient pro- populations promoting them. So, ap- absolutely, HIV has, you know, benefited, if you will, from its high profile.
3: From its huge advocacy, yeah.
1: So that one is science, you all also agree that researchers have found that being bilingual delays the onset of dementia by as many as four years, and that is science.
3: also science. That's pretty oh, cool. Oh, God. Science. Using your brain delays dementia, doesn't it, Steve? Keeping mentally active. Right.
5: Yes. That's, yeah, kind that's, of, that's kind of part of it.
1: It's true. There's been other lines of research that show that people who stay mentally active um, seem to, that seems to have some sort of protective effect against the onset of dementia. So this would... Be in line with earlier research. This, of course, is just looking specifically at being bilingual. Uh, the, interesting, the interesting thing about being bilingual is that it really does engage a lot of a lot of your cortex. If you're speaking a second language, especially if you've learned learned that second language after four years of age, you're using more cortex, uh, more bilateral, you know, both sides of your brain in order to speak, and less just the dedicated language area of your brain. So it is more of a of a demanding task than than speaking a language that you learned before you were four years old. So that means that everyone got it correct this week. That's again. More. Wow. Yeah. yeah, you guys are yeah. doing well. I guess you're tapped into my news sources or something. <laughs> well, <it's> a, you're <laughs> also
3: starting with Rebecca and Bob now. So pretty much. Uh, I got to reverse the order next time. Uh,
1: <laughs> So number three is scientists have used a new technique to date a modern human skull that was discovered 50 years ago. That much is true. There's a, a, a human skull found in South Africa that was discovered 50 years ago. It's, it's a Homo sapiens. Uh, but they really weren't able to date it well. Now they've used a new dating technique. They're basically dating the the dirt that it was found in, not the skull itself. They've dated it to 36,000 years old. Actually, there's been a a few finds recently. Um, There's also been basically at this critical window of early Homo sapiens. A lot of this research has been uh, focused on trying to settle an ongoing debate between the so-called multi regional hypothesis, which is basically that fully modern human beings sort of evolved in in parallel in multiple different parts of the world at the same time, you know through genetic exchange of material not not parallel evolution per se, but the, they were distinct populations that maintained themselves as distinct populations but were sharing genetic information across these populations and as they were evolving into modern humans that 's the multi regional hypothesis the out of Africa hypothesis is that modern humans evolved in Africa and then spread to Europe and asia and that the The out of Africa hypothesis has been gaining a lot of steam in the last you know ten or twenty years and it 's it's definitely the, the dominant theory at this at this point in time. It probably it's it's approaching consensus at this point. And now there's been a couple of new studies, this is one of them that um that greatly supports the Out of Africa hypothesis, but also pushes the date up to about this forty thousand year range, so later than than we thought we thought maybe that they had migrated out of Africa as long ago as a hundred thousand years, and this the new dating of the skull moves it up to about you know, f- you know around the forty thousand year age there was another uh, another find of uh, human remains I believe this one was in Siberia that dates to about you know forty something thousand years ago, again showing that not just humans but this particular a population of early humans with with a certain um artifacts showing that they had the same technology basically showing that this population that was in Africa this late also was making its first appearance in Europe again around the same time so really supporting not only the out of africa hypothesis but 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 moving the date up to about 40,000 years it's
3: very intelligently designed the whole thing <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> So congratulations,
1: right. you guys all uh, all Yay. got it again. You guys have a good record I'm so far. i as smart this year. as Bob. I think am going to have to definitely step up <laughs> the uh, difficulty a little bit. Yeah,
4: Steve, me getting two in a row? Come on, something's wrong.
1: Well, although uh, although Evan was not with us this week, he's going to join us now to tell us both uh, the answer to last week's puzzle and the new puzzle. So, Evan, thanks for joining Hi, us. Hi, Evan.
7: Sure, no problem. Thank you.
1: So can you read uh, from last week's puzzle
7: for us? Sure. Okay, last week's puzzle. If I have something that is said to have existed in the 1st century, that was first written about in the 8th century, that was actually produced in the 14th century, that was almost totally lost in the 16th century, that was proven to be a hoax in the 20th century, what do I have?
1: And the answer is... The
7: answer is, of course, as most people got, the Shroud of Turin. Shroud of
1: Turin. That was kind of an easy one this week, but it was still a good one. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Had a certain poetry to it. So, Evan, there were lots of correct answers, but who got it first?
7: Rich Ludwig emailed it in, so congratulations to Rich.
3: Yay, Rich. Good work, man.
7: And, and (coughs) of course, a lot of people uh, sent emails and on the boards uh, had the correct answer. Hey, but Rich was was first. a lot of people out there know their Shroud of Turin uh, Being
3: first knowledge. Mm.
7: Yes.
1: <laughs> well, give us this week's puzzle. This one, I think, is a little bit harder.
7: Oh, it is. It is. So put on your thinking caps, everyone. The French and the Germans both agree, and so do Chinese from 1200 B.C. It only takes ten, placed upon three. Peer through one eye, and you will soon see. Designed to impress children as young as three, it dazzles... Adults, especially those that believe. All it takes is a skeptic to add fabric, you see. The magic disappears, and this trick is history. What is it? It's
2: a rhyming poem. was a, a real one. challenge, getting through that. <laughs> 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 I'm kidding. Very well done.
5: Evan,
4: you, Evan, you are uh, disappointing me. You were supposed to wrap your next rhyming poem. <laughs>
7: I didn't promise that. But we promised. Sometime this year. Sometime this year. I never promised when I would make a yeah, <clears throat> rap. <sighs>
3: He's but right. I
7: did say probably sometime this year that would occur. Okay. So stay tuned, folks. We've we'll
3: got a long way to go.
7: And, and rap enthusiasts, both of you <laughs> out there. enthusiasts. Oh,
1: my God. <laughs> oh, God, you are so white. Yeah. All right, Bob, give us a quote to close out the show.
5: I got one note from... Uh, This is from John Adams, a quote that he that uh, Ronald Reagan uh, famously mangled. Uh, He said, "Facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence." What did Ronald Reagan say? He said, "Facts are stupid things." (laughs) 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 That's funny
1: because it's true.
4: Uh, this coming
5: from a guy that made
4: movies with monkeys.
1: Homer said, facts. You could prove anything even remotely true with facts. <laughs> <laughs> good old John
3: Adams. Good man. Well, well
1: yeah. that is our show for this week. We all, or most of us, prepare to leave for Las Vegas yes. and TAM 5. Yes, Everyone so. have a great a great
3: time at TAM. I won't be able to make it this year. But Thank you, Perry. I'm sure you all have a good time. We're looking forward to it. We'll miss you, Perry.
1: Then thanks for joining me again this week, guys. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, you too, Steve. Yeah. We'll see you. you Whoever's going to
4: TAM, please look for us. Come up to us. Let us know who you are. We're really looking forward to meeting you.
1: And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission.